RPC Radio. Hello and welcome to Taxing Matters, your one-stop audio shop for all things tax, brought to you by RPC. My name is Alice Kemp and I will be your guide as we explore the sometimes hostile and ever-changing landscape that is the world of tax law and tax disputes. Taxing Matters brings you a fortnightly roadmap to guide you and your business through this labyrinth. In case any of you miss any crucial information or just want some bedtime reading, there is a full transcript of this and indeed every episode of Taxing Matters on our website at www.rpc.co.uk forward slash taxing matters. Today we're following up on our episode on the launch of the CFAR network by delving deeper into the legal landscape of crypto fraud. Joining us to look into this knotty question, from the criminal perspective, we have Michael Goodwin, Queen's Counsel. Michael is a highly regarded silk with expertise in business, financial crime and serious crime cases. Along with his masterful grasp of the law and very tactical focus, he also has an incredible eye for detail and an amazing grasp of the technical aspects of any case, which I didn't just read from his client testimonials. I actually can speak to this from my own experience of working with him. Michael is also a devoted cycling enthusiast and can often be found early in the morning racing through the lanes of the countryside and impeding the flow of rural traffic. Michael, welcome to Taxi Matters. Thank you, Alice. Thank you for that introduction. I'm absolutely delighted to be here and thank you for inviting me to focus on criminal law and the criminal justice aspects of cryptocurrency. So first question is, Why is crypto important? Firstly, it's the practical reality. I'm sure many of your listeners will be aware of this already. Crypto is the first alternative to mainstream and traditional finance systems. It provides a cheaper and faster money transfer system, making it possible to transfer value online without the need for a middleman like a bank or a payment processor. And so what we've got now is a mechanism by which near instantly value can be transferred for very low fees. This reality is giving access to a financial system to many people who would not otherwise be eligible under the more traditional banking systems, either because of government control or regulation. Secondly, the importance of crypto really comes about because of its reduced risks which exist when using crypto assets. I am, of course, referring to the fact that crypto assets are decentralised and completely transparent. The third headline is its uses. Although we're all aware of it being used as a virtual currency store, there are a forever growing range of uses which are coming about, particularly as the technology develops. Some of your listeners, Alice, will be aware of things like, for example, DeFi, which is the decentralized finance or peer-to-peer financial services infrastructure, which is being developed and now exists. This is something that provides a base for innovative technology. With DeFi, you can now do most things that a bank supports. For example, you can earn interest, you can borrow, buy insurance, trade and much more. And it's faster and easier to use. It's quicker and more effective. And so the uses by which crypto is developing is undoubtedly making it even more important. Lastly, I would refer, of course, to the reason we're here, which is because of the developments, which we'll come on to talk about, 
Crypto provides a new and extensive potential for cyber fraud. The eye-watering and huge losses which are being made as a result of people falling victim to crime within this sector. And that's why crypto is so important in this way. Thank you. You've mentioned there that it is an attractive prospect for a number of different reasons. What protections are there at the moment for individuals who choose to invest in cryptocurrencies and other uses of this crypto technology? The core protection is really the crypto itself. If we just stand back for a moment and consider crypto and what it actually is, this point's often missed in discussions on crypto crime. The currency itself and its related blockchain are generally safe and secure. The currency and the asset exist in an open central ledger for every transaction that's ever happened. And the blockchain is managed by a network of computers. So what that means is that no single individual or company has complete control over it. Computers are constantly re-verifying the transactions on the blockchain and this constant process of verification means that the blockchain can't be interfered with or altered. That's an important starting point. That's the good news. <laughs> the bad news and what counterbalances this are the problems and risks of theft and fraud that come from the manner in which crypto is traded, exchanged and held as digital assets, either by individuals or organisations. The simple point is that currently there are very few protections out there for the crypto trader, investor or consumer. So perhaps not surprisingly, that means that the fraudsters are capitalising on this at really all levels across the full range of cybercrime and fraudulent methods. You've asked what protections there are at the moment. The reality is that the Financial Services Compensation Scheme offers no protection at all and the sector is largely unregulated. But in terms of protections, there have been steps in the right direction, which it's worth highlighting for your listeners. The first of those is within the money laundering context. Alice, the position now is that exchange firms and custodian wallet providers have been brought within the scope of anti-money laundering and combating the financing of terrorism regulation by the Fifth Money Laundering Directive. What this means is that companies taking part in these activities are now under an obligation to register the business with the FCA and to comply with anti-money laundering obligations. That's an important step. What else exists in terms of current protections? Other important developments include the fact that the FCA has recently ruled that a trading platform can no longer conduct regulated activity in the UK. That is sending out a forceful message the regulators intend to take a strong stance within this sector when circumstances require it. The FCA has also published on its website a list of UK businesses that appear to carry out crypto asset activity, which have not been registered with the FCA for anti-money laundering purposes. And so consumers can check that before they start investing. But perhaps most interestingly, the government has last month announced that they're planning to bring 
advertising of crypto assets within FISMA. And that means that the government is planning to effectively legislate to address misleading crypto asset promotions and to ensure that adverts are brought into line with other financial advertising. That's important because, as we'll discuss later on, a lot of the fraud exists as a result of misleading advertising and criminals effectively taking advantage of this unregulated position. So it's clear that the protections that exist have a long way to go, but the infrastructure is there, the appetite is there. We are all eagerly awaiting the outcome of the recent Crypto Asset Task Force consultation, which is due to be published so that we can see what the next steps are in this area. protections inherent in the properties of crypto, both by the decentralization and the blockchain itself, which you've described, and the steps that you've also described that have been taken thus far, why are enhanced protections important? There are many people out there who believe that regulation is against the whole spirit of the technology and actually harms the innovation and reduces the value of the assets. But the protection is important because crypto is an expanding phenomenon and an exciting opportunity. The statistics and the reality of what is being reported really speaks for itself. We know that something around the region of 78% of all adults have now heard of crypto. About 4% of the adult population in this country have now invested or hold cryptocurrency. The exchanges which are used to trade crypto are very easy to access. And it's really ordinary members of the public who are involved in this now. It is not the case that this requires specialist knowledge and tech-savvy folk who are there in a dark corner involved with crypto. That's important because with that and with the risks that are associated with cryptocurrency comes the need for heightened protection. Even before we look at what's down the line, for example, we know that large companies such as Amazon are looking to build its own blockchain and digital currency roadmap. And they're not the only corporate entities which are involved in those sorts of projects. The FCA lists the main risks of cryptocurrency under five headings. Firstly, consumer protection, the need to regulate and ensure money laundering compliance. The second risk is the price volatility. Your listeners will be very aware of this, particularly recently with the huge crashes that have been taking place. People can lose a lot of money and they can gain a lot of money and it can happen very quickly. There are high risks involved as a result of price volatility. Thirdly, many of the products are complex in the way that they are traded and handled. So, for example, some crypto assets cannot just be converted back to cash. There has to be a demand and there has to be a willing buyer before you can actually sell them. And people getting involved in purchasing crypto assets are not necessarily understanding some of the complexity involved with the trading. The fourth risk is charges and fees, which can be high as they're completely unregulated at the moment. And the final risk that the FCA identifies is the material marketing. I've already touched upon the changes and added protection that's coming in relation to 
advertising. But that's important because often individuals overstate the returns and understate the risks, all of which affects the consumer. So protections for consumers and financial investment are very much required. And I believe these are just going to expand and become more relevant. And ultimately, we hope, will reduce the fraud and crime. And that's probably a good time for us to talk about it, in fact. So with every new technology, there are those who will exploit it. And from the various news stories like the squid coin fraud, the hacks of various exchanges, and indeed the use of cryptocurrencies to pay ransomware demands and other less savoury activities. It appears that crypto is no different, but is this media portrayal accurate? Well, the short answer is yes, absolutely. The media portrayal of an increasing climate of crypto fraud is very accurate and very relevant. But We shouldn't lose sight that many of the crimes that are being committed are really well-known frauds, scams and thefts, which have just been fashioned into the cryptocurrency context. The reality is that about 86% of reported fraud is now estimated to be cyber-related. That's been exacerbated by the COVID pandemic as our lives have been brought online even more. This has really led to the well-publicised first-ever CPS economic crime strategy, an ambitious plan to combat economic crime, which is estimated to be costing billions each year to the economy. As with all areas of financial crime, the fraudsters are targeting everyone from the largest institutions to the smallest investors. Your listeners will have read in the headlines almost on a daily basis that at one end of the scale, you have examples such as the Metropolitan Police, who've recently seized £114 million worth of cryptocurrency as part of an ongoing money laundering investigation. That being the largest ever seizure of crypto assets in the UK and one of the largest in the world. And at the other end of the scale, there's the increasing number of smaller frauds taking place against amateur investors and individuals who are perhaps more vulnerable to these scams. What do these crimes and frauds look like? How does it happen? You know from your experience in this field and RPC's involvement in this area of advising and representing clients that crypto fraud takes many different guises. But really, there are four main categories of crime in this sector. There are the ICO frauds, the initial coin offering frauds, where the latest token or coin comes out, offering an investment that is essentially worthless. It's a complete fraud. Secondly, you have the use of cloned websites, which are being used to steal from investors or consumers that log on and think that they're buying coins and of course they're not. Then you have the usual hackers and scammers stealing from individuals digital wallets where they've kept their crypto online, often gaining access to an individual's assets through either the exchange accounts or by tricking them by clicking the wrong links or disclosing passwords, that sort of thing. Lastly, you have the sort of giveaway frauds, which are also common in the crypto space. You mentioned the Squidcoin case, which was November 2021. That was a prime example of the sort of typical crime that's taking place. That involved a digital token inspired by a Netflix series, in fact. The token was marketed as a play to earn cryptocurrency. Its price soared by thousands of a percent, but it turned out to be a scam. The promoter drew in all its buyers 
then stopped trading, made off with all the money, an estimated $3 billion. The media portrayal is accurate. It's happening every day. It's in the news. The scams are coming thick and fast. You mentioned in there the efforts by CPS and other prosecutors to check this fraud pandemic, I guess I could say. The present Computer Misuse Act is 1990, and some people think that given this age, it's not really fit for this purpose, which the government have kind of acknowledged with a call for evidence about how to update it, which closed in June 2021. What would you see as the types of issues which the government will need to grapple with in relation to crypto to make it fit for at least this purpose? As you said, the Computer Misuse Act 1990 is now 30 years old. It was introduced primarily to deal with traditional hacking offences, such as unauthorised access to computers. But it's also right to say it has evolved to meet the modern technology requirements. As you know, it was amended by the Police and Justice Act of 2006, then looking to tackle the new and growing internet-based problem of denial of service attacks cyber attacks had started to shut down networks causing considerable damage. Then the Act was further amended in 2015, introducing a new aggravated offence of unauthorised act causing or creating a risk of serious damage with a substantial increased maximum sentence of 14 years imprisonment. So what we've got now really are four main offences created by the Act, including unauthorised access to a computer, unauthorised access with intent to commit another offence, such as theft or fraud, and doing an act intending to impair the operation of a computer. To give credit to the Act, it's still successfully being used by law enforcement to meet the two major categories of cybercrime, cyber-dependent crime, Crimes and cyber-enabled crimes. But it's also right to say, as you've pointed out, that the Home Office have put out a call for information on the Act and are currently analysing the results. In my view, it is inevitable that the legislation that is relied on to combat a lot of the criminal wrongdoing in this sector is going to evolve. It is necessary for the legislative gaps in the Act to now develop and for there to be a response to what is now sophisticated technological advancements leading to ever more sophisticated and threatening criminal conduct. I suppose really we just have to wait and see how the government responds and what the Home Office report. But I think we're all agreed that the law must continue to evolve and keep track of the technological innovation within this sector and ensure that the criminal justice system is able to continue to respond and ensure that justice takes place and that recovery occurs through the use of the criminal courts, if that's what's, what's decided. us on to the criminal courts. What about for victims? How can criminal law help to address this crypto fraud problem? The criminal law is ready and waiting and is already being used by the authorities, as well as the computer-related offences, which I've 
just referred to, crypto offences can be prosecuted just like any financial or business crime. Whether you're looking at offences under the Theft Act, money laundering offences under the Proceeds of Crime Act, or even the Fraud Act itself, property and false representations can be the subject of fraud. What is important is that the criminal law is evolving and has evolved in order to impact in this sector. Assisted by the common law, which has defined property as including things in action and other intangible property, which is particularly relevant within the crypto sector. Once proceedings are instigated in the criminal courts, then the criminal law is able to proceed the same as it does for any other type of offence, so that the courts have a wide range of powers that following conviction, they may impose compensation order in favour of the person or the company who suffered loss. Restitution orders can be imposed by the criminal courts to restore stolen crypto assets. And even confiscation aimed at recovering proceeds of crime, removed from defendants as well as any benefit that they've accrued as a result of their crime, can be brought and crypto assets feature in relation to those. There are also the powers that exist as part of the criminal process to, for example, restrain assets before a trial takes place to ensure that they're preserved once the conviction is obtained. The cases are beginning to be reported. The police across the UK recently having seized Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies to the value it's been reported of a third of a billion pounds during multiple criminal investigations. That was reported last month. October last year, a 17-year-old who set up a fake website from home, part of a sophisticated cyber fraud, had more than £2 million of cryptocurrency seized by the police. He admitted charges of money laundering um, fraud before the Lincoln Crown Court. And in July of last year, the Met Police seized a record £180 million worth of cryptocurrency in London. So the examples are there. The criminal law is working and is available. One other example of interest to your listeners may have been the case of Andrews, where a defendant, through his IT support website business, managed to hack and steal cryptocurrency from his clients. And he pleaded guilty recently and was sentenced to 20 months imprisonment. You mentioned previously that crypto is increasing and that's just a reality of the situation now and that the media portrayal of the fraud risks is both accurate and frankly worrying. So how do you see this area developing within the criminal law in the future? Well, there's really two aspects, the public and the private enforcement. On the public front, the Crown Prosecution Service has launched an ambitious plan to combat economic crime. The DPP, uh, Max Hill QC, is firmly committed to a forecasted plan to combat economic crime and is providing more resources for specialist economic crime prosecutors. The first economic crime court is in the process of being born and we all wait eagerly to see that birth. But as with many other issues uh, within the criminal justice system currently, there is the issue of proper resourcing. And ultimately, that is the issue that's going to determine the effectiveness of the drive to improve the economic crime reduction. So really, that neatly takes me on to the private enforcement and recovery that is developing and firmly exists already in this area. Because public resources are limited, it does happen 
that when a victim or a company turns to the police for investigation and looking for justice, it is not always the case that the public authorities are prepared and willing to take on that investigation. So more commonly, what is now happening in this fast-moving arena is that victims of crypto fraud are turning to private investigations and private prosecutions to recover their stolen assets. And I would expect, as with the recovery of any loss, for there to be an increased use of private investigations and private prosecutions by those with the available means to ensure that their losses are recovered. Private prosecutions are a unique tool in the fight against crypto fraud. And Alice, I know that RPC and you conduct these and have been involved in private prosecutions recently. The fact is that companies and individuals can bring about the criminal proceedings in the criminal courts through this route in order to ensure that their stolen assets are recovered and also seeking a wider sense of justice under the criminal law. And Michael, what should an individual or a company do if they do encounter a crypto fraud issue themselves? Well, step one, obviously, would be to report it to the authorities and to action fraud. And those details are widely available and publicised. Step two, individuals may consider, and I'd encourage them to consider, obtaining advice from legal professionals with expertise in this field about their options regarding recovery and investigation and really to do that immediately and quickly because time can be very much of the essence when you are looking at crypto fraud. The best way to go about that is to approach professionals with experience in this area and to seek advice quickly and sparing your blushes, Alice, because I know you were instructed in your first crypto case in 2014. Using the expertise of teams such as those at RPC and the wider capability within RPC, victims of this type of fraud are able to very quickly ensure that specialist investigations can take place, funds and assets can be located and recovered, and that perpetrators can be identified, ensuring that effective enforcement can take place to restore the stolen property. That can proceed through the criminal route. And of course, there are the civil recovery aspects and options to that. The victim of crypto fraud has a variety of options available to them. But one of the key challenges with cases in this area is dealing with the cross-jurisdictional issues that can arise and locating and tracing and freezing the crypto assets that could literally be anywhere in the world. It's really the expertise of firms such as RPC and, of course, drawing on the network of CIFAR, which I know RPC are proud to have been a founding member of, that the criminal law can be invoked and used successfully and efficiently to restore the loss. This is really important because millions of people of all ages, large and small organisations are investing and trading in these cryptocurrencies, which are becoming normal in daily life. So it is essential that the public understand the options open to them if they fall victims of crime in this field.
It would also be particularly interesting to see how the insurance sector develops in this area and adapts to the need to underwrite crypto transactions as they become more commonplace and the norm. So that when individuals are being paid wages using cryptocurrency and individuals are acting as consumers using crypto transactions, the insurance sector will inevitably have to adapt in relation to that. That is going to be an important development. Thank you, Michael. And unfortunately, that's all we've got time for in this week's episode. You can find Michael Goodwin QC on Red Lion Chamber's website. You can email him michael.goodwin at 18rlc.co.uk. You can also find him on LinkedIn and on Twitter at mgoodwinqc. any questions for me or for Michael or any topics you'd like us to cover in a future episode please do email us on taxingmatters at rpc.co.uk we'd love to hear from you RPC would like to thank podcast manager Josh McDonald original score was composed and produced by Insider Music who also produced this podcast series to hear a full uninterrupted version of our podcast theme go to Instagram at Insider Music and follow the link in bio and of course a big thank you to all of our listeners for joining us if you like taxing matters why not try RPC's other podcast offering Insurance Covered which looks at the inner workings of the insurance industry hosted by the brilliant Peter Mansfield and available on Apple Podcasts Spotify, Acast and our website. If you like this episode, please do take a moment to rate, review and subscribe and remember to tell a colleague about us. Thank you all for listening and talk to you again in two weeks.